Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-OK. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. When I asked her to tell me about her childhood, she said, well, first we'd have to listen to some Pete Seeger or Arlo Guthrie. Welcome Sarah Jessica Parker to the podcast. This song is called Alice's Restaurant. It's about Alice and the restaurant. But Alice's Restaurant is not the name of the restaurant. That's just the name of the song. That's why I call the song Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Walk right in, it's around the back, just a half a mile from the railroad track. You can get anything you want at Alice's Restaurant. Hey everyone, my guest today is the award-winning actress Sarah Jessica Parker. Sarah became an international star playing Carrie Bradshaw on the HBO television series Sex and the City. She has an extensive list of film credits including Sex and the City and Sex and the City 2, I Don't Know How She Does It, Smart People, Failure to Launch, The Family Stone, State and Maine, Ed Wood, The First Wives Club, My Miami Rhapsody, and Honeymoon in Vegas. She has worked in the theater on and off Broadway since 1976, when she debuted on Broadway in The Innocents, directed by Harold Pinter. Other Broadway credits include the title role in Annie, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, and Once Upon a Mattress. Off-Broadway credits include the original production of Tajillion on her 37th birthday, Sylvia, and The Commons of Pensacola. She currently stars on the HBO television series Divorce. Her fashion label, SJP, includes shoes and handbags and accessories, and she's the creator of two magnificent fragrances, Lovely and Stash. She's an activist. She's married to actor Matthew Broderick, who also appeared on this podcast. Welcome, Sarah Jessica Parker. Thank you, Ilana. (laughs) Welcome to your own home, where we are doing this interview today. Thank you for being so patient and waiting for us to find time to do this. I'm so happy. Me too. And I really feel like everything happens the way it's supposed to. And (laughs) patience really is a virtue, Sarah, (laughs) if anybody asks. Watching your work, which is just deeply moving and hilarious in equal parts. I was telling you earlier, I'm such a fan of divorce and I was such a crazy fan of Sex in the City. But the thing that really struck me of all the things I watched in the hundreds of hours as if I was preparing your wing of the Smithsonian <laughs> was your first acceptance speech. I think it was in 2000 for the Golden Globe. Mm-hmm. And 
in watching that, which I remember because Cynthia Nixon, as we know, is a dear mutual friend. and, And so I was watching that year particularly because she was there, was the graciousness with which you accepted that award, the true surprise, the true joy in having won, and also this way in which under pressure, you were able to be an ambassador of loveliness and generosity that extended past just your win for acting and and producing, but all of the people involved in making something. I don't remember that. So that's nice to hear because I think if one is ever fortunate enough to have an opportunity to thank people, to convey gratitude for any acknowledgement, which is never your own, you know, being acknowledged is always involves when it's work related is there's no way it doesn't involve at least a hundred other people. Right. right? But I think the, the post moment is spent thinking of all those whose names you didn't mention or whose work you didn't mention or whose contribution you didn't mention. And, um, it's sort of a shame because that's really the thing you most recall from those. So that's really, you know, anytime I've had the good fortune to stand up, I, 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 they are, in, in my estimation, usually missed opportunities, you know. Well, luckily you've won more than once. So there were multiple opportunities to go back. And by the way, maybe last year I didn't recall. But it makes me think so much about, you know, we were talking before we started raising our children mm. and what the values are that we hope will be their major takeaway beyond grades and, you know, sixth grade anxieties. And so I wanted to go back a little bit with you and talk about, I know many of your siblings, Uh um, of which there are, you're one of seven. I'm one of eight. That's right. You're one of eight. You're the one. You're the one. And then there are seven more. That's right. And just to get a little sense of, I know that you were born in Ohio. Mm -hmm. So Take us back, if you will, <laughs> to um, your own Let me beginnings. hold on. Let me put some Pete Seeger on. Thank you. Or some Arlo Guthrie. Ugh, um, if only we could. The soundtrack of my childhood. I hope someone turns this around. Has anyone ever interviewed you for your podcast? No. Oh, that would be very interesting. You should consider who that person might be. Maybe it should be Talia, for instance, who's a super good interrogator. Because um, I'd be very interested to ask you the same questions. Okay. So I was born in southeastern Ohio in a small coal mining town. Um, The hospital where I was born was in a very teeny town in the foothills of Appalachia called Nelsonville, Ohio. But wasn't your dad from Brooklyn? So my father was born and raised in Brooklyn on Ocean Avenue and Avenue S. And a public school student, a keen interest in reading and books and literature. His his younger brother, his younger baby brother, um, also um, a student in public schools in Brooklyn, um, went on to be an advocate in the children's court in Brooklyn, has since passed. My real father is living. But he made his way to Ohio, ultimately to the Iowa Writers' Workshop, um, where he got his postgraduate degree. Um, but so my parents, when I was born, they were living in Ohio, and he had uh, just gotten his degree and was teaching at Ohio University in Athens, which is a rather bustling city compared to Nelsonville, uh-huh. Ohio. It's the campus, you know, it's the home of the campus of OU. And so I was born in Nelsonville, Ohio. I lived in Athens, Ohio till I was five. And at five years old, my parents were divorced when I was not even two years old. Do you have any memory of them being together? I do. Strangely enough, I was just talking about it with my mother. I was visiting with my mother on Monday and my stepfather, and they met when I was quite young. They they were married in 1968, so they've okay. been together since 68. And I was recalling a memory that my mother said was it was a memory shy of two, of her going out one night and leaving me with a babysitter and me screaming. And she said, oh, yeah, you wouldn't have been two yet. So my parents divorced and my mother met my stepfather and um, they married on the campus of OU at, um, I think, a place called Galbraith Chapel, maybe. And we were in the wedding. And then my stepfather's family, as well as my mother's mother, lived in Cincinnati, coincidentally. Paul, my stepfather, was a student at OU. And so we moved, when I was five years old, back to Cincinnati, or for my parents, back to Cincinnati. We lived there until I was 11. And on January 1st of 1977, we put everything we owned in a Volkswagen van and moved to New York City. My mother didn't travel because she was pregnant with the seventh baby, Allegra. 
So she couldn't travel and she was going to close up our house and, in Cincinnati. And we came to New York City. All seven of you and then the eighth to be born. So the seventh was to be born. And what motivated the that move? move? So it's a sort of long and unusual story, but there was a man in Cincinnati named Tom Robertson. And when we were little, NBC's version of an after-school special was called a young people special. And it was on about once or twice a year on NBC. They were made out of Cincinnati. There was this brilliant filmmaker named Tom Robertson who would write and direct these half hour intended for young audiences specials. And they were they were on all the NBC stations, but they were produced out of Cincinnati because he was a Cincinnatian. <laughs> and that we came upon an ad when I was eight years old in, an, in our local newspaper that they were looking for a little girl to play the little match girl in NBC's, um, NBC, you know, young people specials version of the little match girl. So I saw it and my sister and I actually went downtown to our local television station, WLW TV five <laughs> stood in line in with Cincinnati. 500. In, yeah. <laughs> And um, stood in line with 500 other, other little girls, and we auditioned for the part. And I got the part. It shot for over five days in, in Cincinnati with this brilliant, brilliant DP named Eli Agopian. It was shot on film, of course. He was an Armenian. And it was this incredible experience. And I loved it. And I was eight. Was this your first time performing? Correct, yes. I, at that point, had just started studying ballet, as had my sister and my older brother, Toby, who you know, with the Cincinnati Ballet Company, which at the time was a really well-regarded company. Um, and they had a beautiful ballet school as part of their company, a sort of farm system, if you will. So I did that. And meanwhile, Toby was auditioning for things in Cincinnati and getting jobs and going on the road. And then... When, when I was 11, Toby and I did, also for Tom Robertson, another Young People special called Nightmare, The Immigration of Joachim and Rachel. <laughs> I love that. Remember and I said I'd was... watched all, all of your footage this week? I would you say it's not just the Golden Globe that I love, but really it's the, um, the Joachim story. Nightmare, the immigration of Joachim and Rachel. And it was the story of two children escaping the Warsaw Ghetto and coming to New York to, you know, very distant relations who were going to take them. Beautiful. And while we, we shot that, there was an ad in the paper, once again, that there was a Broadway play coming to New York, a play called The Innocents, directed by Harold Pinter, and they were looking for children. And we were going to go to New York to see my father. So we traveled to New York that summer, and Toby and I auditioned for the part. And um, initially, we were first cast as the understudies for the two children. And once they started rehearsals, they discovered that the girl they cast was too young. And so they called me in, and I flew to London with my stepfather. And I took over in London and uh, then, and Toby got to perform it when we came to Broadway. So after we finished that, and we came back to New York, my dad, my stepfather, wanted to start a trucking business in New York that would transport Broadway shows on the road. So that is what allowed us to come to New York with a somewhat concrete plan. I mean, it was not fleshed out. <laughs> yeah. We didn't really have any certainty that there was work or employment or even money. We had been fortunate enough to apply very early for the subsidized housing on Roosevelt Island before it was built. My parents had read an article on New York Magazine on this place in the middle of the East River that would create lots of affordable housing because we couldn't move to New York. We couldn't afford to live in New York, but that would give us the proximity we needed to the city. So we came to New York on January 1st to discover that we didn't, the apartments weren't ready. So my father looked in the New York Times and he found a house for rent. We first lived in the Holiday Inn in Yonkers for a while. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Literally with every, I mean, when I'm telling you like pots and pans, like sometimes my dad would stop short on like I-75 and we'd have to put our hands back to keep the skillet from like flying forward and hitting us in the head. 
Um, it was real. Yeah. It was real. And so when this is happening, because I'm just picturing my kids and their ages and sort of where you guys were and without your mom, by the yeah, way. Yeah. Um, without when, the person that really created any order in our lives. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, that's a, I never considered that before because my, my father had six kids in the back seat, six kids and all of our freaking junk. It's just a massive undertaking. Yeah. And I can't imagine, first of all, I can imagine my mom was thrilled. I mean, I don't know that she'd been in a house alone in quiet, what, 15 years because Pippin was 15, but she must've been like wondering constantly what was happening. Was anybody washing their face or brushing their teeth or saying, yeah, please thank you. Like, you know, the The things that are important to her. Yeah. I don't know how well you remember this time, but was it um, vividly vividly? Okay. So tell me terrifying, exciting. Oh, I was excited. I was counting the days down till we were leaving Uh, for some good reasons, some, some really lousy reasons. Like I knew I didn't have to finish any of my homework over the Christmas break because it didn't matter because I wasn't going back. And I love New York. Ultimately, when the Innocents came to New York, we went, you know, we played out of town in Boston, Philadelphia, and we came to New York and it was not successful. Um, I, I couldn't believe I went back and I couldn't believe that I had been in New York and I had lived there. And I remember saying to Toby, can you believe we were in New York City today and now we're back Surreal. In our tiny little beautiful town. By the way, Cincinnati is a fanta- absolutely fantastic city. But I was done. Like I was in my head, I was like, that's where I'm going to be. And that's where I want to be. So I was really excited. I think all of us were. I mean, I think uncertainty had been so much a part of our lives that we had integrated it so well into our beings. Uncertainty be about money or housing or uh, basic necessities were, there was a question mark constantly about, can we reach this goal this month, you know? But maybe that allowed for us to be ready for anything, any adventure. I mean, there were some children that were making bigger sacrifices, like Rachel, who was not, I believe, intending to be a performer, was like uprooting herself. She was a great student. She was in a really important school. Is Rachel younger than Rachel's you? older. Can you just say that? Yeah, the... so it goes Pippin, Toby, Rachel, me, Andrew, Megan, Allegra, and Aaron. Allegra was yet, yet not born. Aaron wasn't born. Megan was the baby. She was seven when Allegra was born. So there was a big gap. So Rachel was in lots of ways giving up the most. Mm. My mom was giving up the most because she had a big, full, rich life in Cincinnati, came to New York, didn't know a soul. But I think we were really excited. We loved the city. We loved the theater. We loved museums. We loved the subway. Did you know your biological dad's family here? Mm-hmm. And, yes. And did you kind of continue to have a relationship with your real dad and your stepdad? We did. I mean, it wasn't consistent. There wasn't any kind of proper system in place for like visitation, especially because he lived far away from us. Um, but we saw our grandparents a nice amount. They eventually retired to Florida and, um, to century village. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. And we were very friendly with them and, um, in certainly in contact with our father, but he lived in Philadelphia by then. He had moved to Philadelphia in the mid seventies. And did he remarry and have another family? He did. He remarried in 1984 and is still married. Um, he didn't have more children, but he has a, a wonderful wife. Yeah, Karen, great wife. The first two directors you're describing that you worked with, like talk about being spoiled forever, right? Yeah. The extraordinary luck mm. of those early jobs being with people who were just such artists. Yeah. It's such a, a luck of the draw in that way. Definitely. And professionals, you know, really diligent about work. You know, Tom Robertson obviously was different because the environment in which he was working was not like an industry town, but he created, you know, we shot this show in five days, Monday through Friday, and it was done. Like summer stock, yeah. in a way. And then when I worked with, with Harold Pinter, with Harold came Claire Bloom. And I think that's the really important person to talk about in a way because when you talk about the good fortune, I mean, first of all, well, I was 
the minute I met Harold Pinter, I was literally like in love with him. Like I can't explain it because I was 11 years old. Well, first of all, I'd seen plays of him at the, of his at the Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. They had done his plays and we were subscribers. So we went to all the theater there and they always had New York actors come in and do these great, do you know the Cincinnati Playhouse at all? No. Oh, it's a great regional theater and it's like, you know, won a Tony for its work. Um, so I knew some Pinter plays and I think my stepdad had been Stanley the waiter in, um, what's the one? I can't remember. Uh, not memory of, I can't remember. So I knew who Harold Pinter was. He was beautiful, physically, absolutely dashing and, um, British brilliant. You just knew like if, if you grew up in a house where literature was important and, um, like radio culture, I can't explain it. And you know, he always, smelled like cigarettes and his beautiful cologne, whatever like fragrance he wore. Stash. Wasn't it stash? (laughs) And, you know, cocktails by nighttime and just smart. And then Claire Bloom was this like uh, extraordinary, gifted, magical bird, which I didn't know her work, but I, by the time we were working together, I would stand backstage and this is really like remains so important to me I used to stand by the big speakers back at back then they had big speakers backstage to amplify the sound so whatever system they had in place there was a massive speaker off both stage left and stage right and I would stand by the speaker and like lean into it and just listen to her voice because she had the most beautiful diction and pronunciation and her accent was like perfect, you know, but she was a real professional. And she said to me early on, she took a liking to me. I used to come to her dressing room while she got ready and watch her put her makeup on and everything. And she used to say to me, do not become a professional child. I won't have anything to do with you. Don't turn out like all those other child actors. It's no good for you. You'll never get better. And I was like, my son's 11. So thinking of an 11 year old brain, did you intuit what she meant by that? Completely. I don't know why, but I think you would have too. Maybe because it was the person telling me. Maybe if somebody else had said it and I didn't admire them so much, it would not have stuck. Right. But this resonated. But I was like, whatever I think that means, I better make sure I don't do it. You know? So you're on Broadway. Not for long. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, kid, Joe's is filled with walls that have posters like, yeah, the, yeah that's all part of it, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, how does someone so young heal the broken heart that is, <laughs> I have worked so hard, yeah. we have made this thing, this is Harold Pinter, yeah. this was in England and London, and now it's coming to New York, and it is not being received with the love <laughs> that it has been made of. Um. You know, when you're little and there's not as much at stake, yeah. the cut isn't as deeply felt, I think. I was sad to leave it and have to go back to Cincinnati because we hadn't yet, you know, that was the summer before we moved. This is pre-Roosevelt Island. This is pre-Roosevelt Island. Holiday, so I right. was sad to have to go back, not to the town and to the people, but to not have that experience every night of going to the theater. It was at the Morasco Theater, which is sadly gone now. Mm-hmm. It was a beautiful beautiful tiny little theater they knocked it down to build the new hotel the what's that you know 44th and 45th street I can't believe like you're with your brother in that experience I think we were both disappointed for that reason you know and also because Harold got sick and his doctor wouldn't let him travel to Philadelphia and Boston so he kind of snuck out and came but we were without a director Mm -hmm. for a little while so I think that was problematic for everybody you know so when it was over I mean when the reviews were not good I only gleaned from everybody else's eyes that it was like not just bad but it was bad and that we wouldn't last and I I couldn't really believe that because I was like well I don't understand you know what's required money-wise to keep going we're all willing to show up so what's the difference you know but I'm grateful for that limited time spent doing that. I'll, I'll take that over not having done it at all. You and know? was Annie the next opportunity to be on Broadway and mm-hmm. to live that 
life again. The next thing I did, I came back to New York and um, I right away auditioned for something called the Millican Breakfast Show, which was a big trade show, which all, all the dancers on Broadway did. So I did that first. And that was with like all the Broadway people. Then I auditioned in um, late 77 um, for Annie. Right after the show opened on Broadway, they started a, a national tour and the first person was leaving to go play Annie on the road. So they needed someone to fill her spot as an orphan. So I had seen Annie right when it opened. Like everybody else I had followed, like my, we would always read every article in the Sunday paper because there were endless articles about this show and those kids. And I had worked with a bunch of the kids on the Millican Breakfast Show because they had been doing Annie and doing the Millican Breakfast Show, which is something you could do. When I saw the show, my dad, my stepdad said to me because we got like two seats and two standing room or three seats and three standing room and, and after the show my dad said to me you know you know you're not any material you know you'll never be in the show and I was like no I know that you know I could see what they were doing and I didn't have any of those because skills. did he see it as like that's Broadway that's yeah. Broadway singing yeah. and dancing and, <laughs> yeah exactly right. and I didn't I had done one other musical the Millican Breakfast Show but I'd struggled through the dance audition part like I was a ballet dancer I wasn't a show dancer and I didn't like belt you know and um so when I auditioned I I knew I you know I mean, knew it was long shot but then I ended up getting it so <laughs> yeah so maybe they were looking for a different a different type I don't know if people understand what that would be like maybe being like president but if you're <laughs> of a certain age right Annie I mean, everyone talks about Hamilton now, and it's incredible <laughs> yeah. in a very different way. And yeah. I'm not com comparing the book and the lyrics for, of Annie to Hamilton in exactly the same way. But in terms of what it was to be a young person yes. and to see yourself age-wise on stage yeah. and tons of people your own age yeah. on stage and this kind of heartbreaking story. Yeah. And it's kind of a perfectly put together I think musical. it's a perfect show. And I've told Matthew, who didn't get to see that original production, which I'm like you know, uh, where were you? What parent, what grown up didn't take you yeah. to see that freaking show? Well, that's another show, isn't it? It's, yes. Yeah. To talk about <laughs> that. Where were the parents? Yes. Because yeah. it really is. I think it's one of, I mean, there are a lot of perfect musicals, you know, we, we know what they are, but Annie is among them. And, um, and I never imagined, you know, that first night when I was because I first was cast as an orphan. I played an orphan for a year, and, and I came in also as the understudy to Annie, and then I played Annie for a year. But that first night when I was actually really on stage, not just in the put-in rehearsal, but actually in the real thing, and it was a huge snowstorm, the biggest snowstorm in New York in 30 years or 36 years. And so a lot of people were out that night, so they were like, you might have to go on for Annie tonight, and you might have to do a bunch of other people's tracks as well. And, and we might need you to sit in the audience too, so it looks <laughs> literally, yeah. But I remember being backstage before the curtain went up and looking at the ground and looking at the tape, you know, of all the, where the sets go, you know it well, looking at the signatures, because at that point in the, that, that was the Alvin Theater, everybody would sign the back of the curtain, like movie stars that had come and yeah. Andrea had signed it and people always left notes on the back burlap of that massive fire curtain and um, the black and there was the moving sidewalk, you know, so it was all wooden slats that were on a conveyor and thinking like, I cannot believe I'm here. I cannot believe it. Like way more so than the innocence because sure. the innocence had nothing in front of it. It was no point of reference. Yeah. You know, it, there were, I hadn't seen the innocence. It was not yet a phenomenon. Yeah. This love of performing and this love of storytelling mm. And you're so good at it. Like, how lucky. Sometimes. Right? Sometimes I'm not. Eh, sometimes well, I'm short. we'll talk about that. Lots, how, lots of times, how you get but... up again the next day. Because yeah, yeah. it's so embarrassing yeah, yeah. to do it publicly. Yeah. Wish you could do it privately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, it's just easier. Yeah. But what is that? Where was that coming from? I, I mean, I'm not sure I understand exactly its provenance. And I think a lot of us, yourself included... I think it's a hard thing to explain because, well, part of it's just, I think, the house that I grew up in, which was, you know, we didn't have a television, so we were always listening to records and imagining everything. We listened to records all the time, and not just um, music. We listened to a lot of musicals. We also listened to comedy records, you know, Sam Friedberg and Nichols and May and Bob Newhart and Richard Pryor. We also listened to the radio all the time, like NPR, 
you know, from the time I can remember. So I think a lot of our time was spent in our heads, like imagining things. We put on a lot of shows, not good shows or anything. I've heard of other houses of kids doing really good shows. Ours are, eh. but it was definitely a house where creativity and culture were dominant. We went to the theater in Cincinnati as much as possible. We went to the symphony all the time, even though we hated it and we were bored out of our minds. We had a great museum. We went to the museum all the time, every weekend. We went to the ballet. And are you having access to all this? I mean, having kids in public school, I'm aware of all of the amazing places they get to go and Mm. visit. But you're also describing a childhood where finances were limited. Mm. How are you going to the ballet and the symphony and taking all these classes? And how is all of this happening simultaneously? it was a different time in our government, so we had a lot of um, we had a lot of um, federal funding for the arts, and that included often um, programs for children, access for children to museums, to theater, to ballet. So there was that, and my mom was very industrious and very intrepid about like finding out every freaking opportunity to have access for her children to the arts. So there was that she applied for scholarships for us for the ballet and they granted them if we maintained a certain grade point average. So there was that. Um, Our public schools, and she was probably part of this, also were audiences at Cincinnati Playhouse in the park. So all the kids in public schools got to go to to see plays, appropriate plays at at the Playhouse. Um, Our symphony orchestra, I'm sure she bought tickets on a sliding scale. I'm sure she found the most the cheapest seats Mm -hmm. I know they were way in the back she just thought we should be listening to live classical music and opera and she always said to us at the symphony and the opera and the museum which was equally boring a lot of the time she's like bring a book and if you're like if you can't read bring a book anyway she's like I will leave you on that bench and I will come back and I will check in you can sit on this bench around this art You'll absorb it somehow. As she would say at the symphony, you can bring a book. You are allowed to read while the music is playing. Right. And so I think we grew up with that, and especially if you're not a student. Like I never considered myself a student. I didn't like it. It gave me anxiety. I felt nauseous before tests. You know, I think for so many children in this country, like me, maybe like you, imagining other people's lives is just interesting. And the thing about it is it doesn't mean you don't like your own life, that you're not completely invested in your own or you're looking for a means of escape. To be somebody else, even when you can't do it, to try to be somebody else, to imagine. And when you have big stretches of years where you get to actually be somebody else and spend more time playing them than yourself... I think that's just unbelievable. Like I love, that's why I love books so much because I'm gone and I love my own life and living it. But I think that's it. It's just cultivating a desire for stories is I think a lot to do with a home environment, you know, a grown up in a child's life when school in the library, in a church, in somebody in a child's life promoting storytelling I think is invaluable for lots of reasons, none of which have to do with pursuing a professional career. Right. Just the ability to let person be in their brain and imagine other things. I also think it just creates, as you've said, that this this thing that's so important to you about your for your children is to be an, a, a person of empathy, to connect, to not connect, to wonder why we don't connect, to be curious about other people who look different, smell different, act different. You know, I think that's, that's what comes from stories and knowing and trying to figure things out. So I think that's why I like it. So this is a a big jump, but everything started out in this kind of incremental way where you could get a part and learn and then do the next one and learn or starting as a replacement where you're watching and you get to kind of do someone else's track. Right. Which I actually love not having to have a review with my name in it. It's so great. You're like, you know what? I will replace the day after you open. (laughs) I don't even care. I love, I just want to rehearse. Couldn't agree with you more. The idea of actually having to then um, have judges be part of the experience is really hard. And, you know, I, I know that you sort of, built a life in the theater and then you had this wonderful moment on a sitcom called Square Pegs Mm -hmm. which brought you to 
California. Now you're on a TV show. You were very funny. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had a great comedic. You kind of started out as the the hilarious best friend, <laughs> right? In certain things. Yeah. And yeah. And in films, I remember Lots LA's story. Like, I just remember you having this, um, I don't know, this like unbelievably comfortable comedic elegance um, mm-hmm. in small things and big things with people who were comedy masters holding your own very quickly. I mean, you and Steve Martin are... I did everything I could to be ready for that, though. Like, I once I got that part, I was just like, well, I already loved, I mean, um, being close in age like that he had played such a huge role in our entertainment yes, watching steve like, martin on a, saturday night live exactly. and his films and, and yeah. all of his um you know all the ways in which his body was as much a part of it so i was just meaning very physical physical humor. his physical humor so i went back and i like watched as much of his stuff as i could before we started shooting to um try to better understand why he'd written this part, which, you know, any of those parts that allowed that for, as an actor were in large part the writing. I think anybody that would have been given those same opportunities would have found the same satisfaction mm-hmm. in doing it. And the audience would have liked them as much as they liked me. The parts were so well written. They were so clear. They didn't always give you the blueprint for the physical work, but it, you know, like, that part in, in LA story was absolutely perfectly written, perfectly written. And, um, and then you just work hard to be deserving. And most people I know, most people, you know, do the same with Sandy Mm -hmm. from how you describe how she writes her name to kind of twirling around all the time. You know, it's one thing to go, I wish if I got this part, you know what I would do, but to do that in an audition (sighs) situation, not everyone can bring it well, with confidence I don't, I, in that I couldn't way. either often. I mean, auditions are, I mean, you should do endless series just, yeah. I know, and I know you talk about it, but, you know, sometimes you manage in an audition and sometimes you don't. And for some reason, and, and once again, I do think it's the writing. For some reason, I just, I just understood her. She's not a character I ever would have. Up to that point, no one ever cast me as like the girl that men would be attracted to. Like never. And I just, I guess whatever he put on the page was enough for me to figure it out. Cause I really, I had to, I auditioned for that many times and then had one or two screen tests with Steve. And when I got the part Mick Jackson was the director of that movie. And I just thought, I'll just be physical all the time. And someone will tell me, stop it, you know, if if it's not. And at a certain point, um, Mick Jackson had a megaphone in some of those big scenes that were in big public spaces. And he would just, um, he was British. And he would say, um, you know, and rolling and Sarah Jessica bounce like through a megaphone literally it was like got it understood we all understood did that make you feel good yeah okay the, and, and it's like but that's and that's a whole other conversation is like when you feel supported then you'll try anything because it just doesn't occur to you not to and, and you're working for artists who appreciate that yes, and want collaboration exactly and not- the thing that happened with Sex in the City, in case you're not clear what happened, <laughs> is that all of this work you did on stage and screen kind of all came to this point where all of the best things that you do came together in, in, hmm. in Carrie. Or maybe, too, I think the things that I, because I'm not sure, you know, I think at a certain point, it's hard to know when you're working on a show for a long time, mm. at what point this other f- flip happens and the writers start writing for you, right? And, and your so, strengths, right? And and for all of us. So when you look at the pilot, I and look then at the pilot where it, it went over the years. Yeah, I think. Wow, I don't know why Darren thought of me for this show. Why he, you know, when we met, he said, you know, I kept hearing your voice in my head as as he was writing the pilot. My voice, which did honestly, sincerely, did not make any sense to me because she was so. I never played a character like that. And well, what do you think he meant, or what had he seen, or did you know, know him? I think he'd seen Honeymoon in Vegas, maybe an LA story. I knew who he was, but I didn't. We'd not met, and I, I was just, 
I think he quickly, because he was with us for the first season, I think, you know, it was my job to make it work if I said yes. And like, that's the responsibility. So I think what, what happens at that point and you've done it and you've seen it and you're around it is, is everybody starts kind of working together. And I don't even know that there's a conversation that says, okay, everybody, now we're going to work together and I'll bring everything I can. And you're going to bring all the things I can't bring with words. And so I think in the best of circumstances on a television series that happens quickly and without a lot of conversation. And I think Darren was, is, is an intuitive person. I think one of his many strengths as a producer is putting people together. Like he's a great producer that way and yanking from people. And then in his case, the great thing that happened was that he left to go on do other things and he turned that show over to Michael. And I, I think that's when Michael Patrick, King. Michael Patrick King, we got to go real deep. Like that was his interest in the show was starting to like really mine the possibilities. And I think that's when you really see this adhesive thing happen between story and actor. You get to see Cynthia just rip it up. And Kristen, you know, all these archetypal characters get to go yeah. down, as Scotty Whitman likes to say, yeah. to the basement. Like, you want basement. And, um, and so I think, back to your question is, I think you spent a lot of years doing something and then you have some confidence and skill, even if you're not trained. You have some stuff and then if you're fortunate, then it, you get to tell a story that you can start really, right? So just to, is it dovetail or yeah. continue yes. on? So training, you started as a really young kid performing in public. Mm -hmm. It would have been impossible for you to have the technique or craft built mm -hmm. or, or to even know how to work beyond intuition. Right. I think at this point, there's a way in which there's a fluidity between theater and film and stage. That's what's gotten so great about work now. It doesn't feel like that's a play and right. that's a TV <laughs> right. show. And yet, I don't think you went to college. I think you mm -mm. just have been I tried. working. I was going to. I mean, I thought about it. I visited a couple of schools, but then I was working. And right. So then I just kept working. And You're a and, journey woman. And You've yeah, been working a long time. And that was, yeah. you know, my goal was to be considered a journeyman or journey so woman. So how do you work? Where do you feel most comfortable um, well, I always say I don't really have a process, but I don't really think that's true anymore because I think no matter what you, your profession is in life, whatever, I think everybody has a process by this age, you know, you know, so I don't have any formal training. I don't have any classical training, which I regret, um, just cause I never have done like the classics in my life. But I think my process is I don't like to talk too much about interior life. I don't like to discuss subtext. I can't bear it. I'm fine if everybody else wants to talk about it. I don't care what anyone else's process is. But when is. you're sitting around the table when there's that um, I don't kind like of rehearsal. I don't like to say or... too much. I don't like um, when scenes are challenging emotionally to have anybody tell me what um, what they believe some, some, some interior or past, or what is informing. Like, I would like to be able to count on the story. Because I don't have training, I don't like to connect. I, I'm not good at connecting technical with emotional. So the talking tends to be, feels technical to me. And I would prefer to simply sit across, preferably from a good actor, and respond. You know, it's funny, when I asked Matthew Broderick, your husband, <laughs> You know, we were talking about how not that many people, unless they have to, do the same thing for, you know, since they're very, very young, right? With, and, and so what he, I was like, you must still like it, right? Like you're still getting some, something out of it, right? You started at 17 and now you're 50 and you're still, and he was kind of talking about like, especially in the theater, when it all comes together mm. exactly in the way you're describing. Like when all of the parts, like a fine Swiss watch, mm. are kind of working together. You can't really put words to it, mm -mm. but there's a satisfaction mm. in the telling of the story the best. and the community. It's the best. It's best, better than any yeah. other medium. It's incredible. It's, and, you know, it's usually, I find, the week after you open. Mm. Like, and that you can have had a good experience going into it, rehearsals, great director, great cast, I meaning 
you got so much from this. It's so helpful. Made you feel great. Made you, you know, push and pull and challenged you. And the cast is the same and good reviews, bad reviews, whatever. And you can feel that way weeks in the weeks leading up to those to the bad week, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, which everybody has a different way of dealing with. Uh-huh. But I find like that week after opening, and it's when yours, it's yours again. like yeah. for real, because there's no other time an actor can say that for sure. Because mm-hmm. I know now, having spent so many years in an edit, how much an actor's work is not their right. own right. on film, right. but in the theater, man. It doesn't matter how much you like your director or whatever. Once they are gone. It's yours. It is. The, and when it's working, even in a play that's troubled, it's... It's ecstasy. It's, 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 it's like it must feel like what it feels like for a ball player to be making that perfect sound with the ball hitting the bat, you know, that just series of great games, you know, great plays in the field and great games at bat. And... You just can't plan it. You don't know why. Why is it so ephemeral? Why is it? Why can't I capture it and hold on to it? Why? Why am I not getting this joke right? You know, like it's the weirdest thing. But yeah. that's why I think people work in the theater over and over again, even as painful mm. as it is, and more so every year. The more people that have opinions and voices and online, and oh, blah, yeah. Blah, 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 yeah, from the first freaking preview on, right? It's unmatchable in satisfaction. The thing that happened with Sex in the City, which which makes sense and might have happened anyway because of where your career was going at that time. And and you were a movie star doing a TV show, which wasn't um which was, was new. Well, I was getting some decent work, but I don't know if I was a movie star. Well, I'm going to say you were. Oh, that's <laughs> not my mom. I understand. I'm my mom. <laughs> your lovely mom. Yeah. Um that that what did happen with that show and which is so special when you shoot something on location so much of the mm. time. Um, you lived you lived in the location that you were shooting in, yeah. right? You weren't at a hotel in Atlanta. Yeah. And then when yeah. the show was done, you went home to New York City. Yeah. And went back. So everyone in New York felt like, whether they were actually speaking parts on the show no. or extra, they all felt like they yeah, were extras. They, were they the- all felt ownership in some way of I'm this glad they magical. Have. But what happened for you is that you became really famous and um, beloved and also had to walk the streets among all the people who who felt like they were in the show with you. Can you talk a little bit about how you negotiate this? Well, I think for a lot of us, myself and Cynthia, Kim and Kristen, you know, we weren't children, luckily. Like we were grown women and I think we were yeah, we were 30 at least. Um, so that I think was an enormous advantage. So we were better equipped to handle things, but just because life experience and maturity gives you a little bit of, um, like you've got some muscle, you know, and at that point in, in all of our lives, I think we were, you know, surrounded by people that we trust and loved and who wanted for us the best. Um, so meaning counsel, right? Were you married to Matthew when you got we that got show? We got married, um, the week before we shot the pilot, wow. on the Monday before we started shooting the pilot, the following Monday. So when Darren asked me to do the show, I said, well... I do. I do. <laughs> I said, well, I, I, I was like, I was afraid to tell him. I was like, but to be, well, I was like, I have to tell you, and it's kind of a secret, but I'm getting married, and I can't work that day. And because that was around the exact time he wanted to shoot. And I was doing Once Upon a Mattress at the time also. So meaning, so we were grownups and, and I think, you know, the first year we didn't, we weren't even on the air. We shot a whole season and we were shooting the second season when we, when we went on the air. And I think over time, you know, the show, it cultivated its own place. And I think for, for me, I, I was, I'm able to see all the good that came of the exposure, meaning like the, the burdens of it, you know being interrupted when you're out with your family or at a meal or now with, you know, phones all the time and cameras and selfies, 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 and pictures. And every, the opportunity for a lack of privacy every time you're out on the street. There are times I think that I am able to say to someone, you know, I'm with my children and it's really important that I'm only their parent right now. Like they're just not interested. So I owe you one, Mm -hmm. you know, I think I'm better at that because of the children in a way but I think I also recognize that the times that it feels intrusive, the things that 
that fame brings that feel un, uninvited that are byproducts, you have to, f you have to reconcile these things because with those came a singular privilege that we share, those four women, the four women in total, um, an experience that will never be duplicated, a story we got to tell that I not one single day regretted telling, whether the story was successful or not, the experience of being on that set, every single solitary day was the joy of my professional life. So any of the stuff that feels like, ah, oh, this isn't a good time, or why are they looking at me, or all that stuff, it just is eclipsed by the good, eclipsed by the opportunity, eclipsed by the, the financial freedom it allowed for many of us to make other choices, to, to make choices, period, to get to say no to work, to be a parent. And like most working women in this country, I can say, I don't want to do this as a working person because I want to do that. I can afford the kind of childcare I need. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it just goes on and on and on. So you deal with it because what are you going to do? Be resentful, bitter, speak poorly of something that altered your life in ways that thousands of people far more talented than me are equally as deserving and won't have it? You know, how many talented people do you know that just don't get the work they should or still worry about paying rent? Like, it's crazy. So all that stuff, yeah, it's annoying sometimes. And yeah, I worry about my kids and trying to be a parent with them. I mean, that's the hard stuff is like I'm out with the kids and they don't find it scary. They, they find it intrusive. It feels annoying to them because they want me to themselves. They want to think of me simply as their parent. I have explained to them that if this is the cross they have to bear, there are far worse things. Sure. There are children, like, we need not go into that. Yeah. And because of the that thing, sometimes we get to go to really special places or meet somebody we might want to meet or go to an opening night of a show because, mm -hmm. you know, so... Everybody has to find a place for it in their life, but they don't have to find it in the way that I do. And I can say to people, I have to be a parent now. You know? And they respect that for the most part. For the most part, they respect it. Do your kids have any inclination or desire to be performers? And how would you reconcile that, having done it yourself as, as a kid yeah. at a, di a different time, obviously? The exposure was different. And yeah. the vulnerabilities are different in terms of what we're talking about yeah. right now, has that come up? It has in passing. There was a moment where I think James Wilkie was thought he wanted to try it. Um, he played, he was in um, theater for a new city. He did their production of um, a Christmas Carol for a couple years. But the truth is he said to me later, there was a, that during that period, he was like, I, I will shoot. I wish you would let me audition. And I said, here's the thing. You can audition after school. You're not going to miss school. You don't need to miss school. You got to do it. Why can't I? And I said, because I didn't also get to be the student. I wasn't the student you were. And mm -hmm. I didn't have the, you know, the, the opportunities in, in schools that you've had. You're a student. Um, and later he said, I'm so glad. I'm so glad. He, you know, he's such a student. And, you know, and if my daughter Loretta or Tabitha thinks for a moment they want to, I, I'm I indulge it and say, great, one day after you finish college, you can pursue anything. I think it's wonderful. Try it, try it all. I just don't have any interest in them being actors right now. I just think it's way too complicated for children today. Way yeah. too complicated. And there's too much that, that I think is inhospitable and unfriendly and I just didn't, I, I don't think I would have the, const I don't have the constitution even to be on Twitter myself, let alone have anybody talk about my kids. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Speaking of auditions, does any come to mind? When we came to New York to audition for The Innocents, we, you know, sent a letter because they said they were looking for children and these were the ages. And my dad, my stepdad took us to the park and like he took a headshot of us or whatever. And we sent it in and they said, sure, you know, if you want to come to New York on your own dollar and you want to come by and audition, that's great. And so we showed up and, and we showed up at a man named Arthur Cantor, who was a huge Broadway producer. Like his name was on the door. It was like old fashioned, you know, 
I think it was like in 15 something Broadway, yeah, you know, on an old wooden door and with the glass, glass. exactly. Yeah. And we walked in and at the time the, um, the production stage manager who was a Mitch Erickson, who was a legendary PSM and his assistant, Johnny Handy, also legendary were there. And, um, in Mr. Cantor's office. And the first thing that they said to, to Toby and to me was here, these scripts aren't collated. You guys sit down and collate these scripts and then we'll do some of your audition scenes. So the, having just like literally driven once again in that bus to New York City, knock, knock, knock. Oh yes, come in kids. Sit down and collate these scripts and then you can audition. So that was the first thing, which as I was like, hmm, interesting. I was like, what does collate mean? <laughs> um, I auditioned for a soap opera once, I'm remembering now, and that was a very bad situation. What's the one that filmed in Brooklyn that we all auditioned for all the time? Was it Another World or As the World Turns? I think it was As the World Turns. Is that possible? Yeah. So I think I auditioned for that one. The director kept taking phone calls during my audition. Really rude, I will say. Now, I've never said this before because I didn't want to hurt his feelings. And I'm sure, well, if he's living or not. But I found him to be so rude and so dismissive and kept talking through my audition and was very unfriendly. And then... I got the part anyway, but I kept saying, well, should I stop because you're on the phone? And he would motion with his hand, you know, keep going, keep going. But I was like, but how do you hear me if you're on the phone? It was a big office. It was like a cliche, yeah. you know, it was a dismissive, diminishing <laughs> man, and then I got the part, and I remember nobody helped me. I got to that studio, you know, you're starving. Yeah, and, and it's, it's a like huge cavern in the morning, and you don't know yeah. where anything is, and you don't know who anybody is, and they're screaming for you, show up, you know, Sarah Jessica Marker, show up at the blah, blah, for a dry block or whatever these things are called. <laughs> I don't know what it is or where it is. Running. Where? And then the mad at me when I got there, where I was like, well, no one, I'm... Uh, no one got me. No one got me. I don't know where I am trying to understand that language quickly you know there's like a whole language that's related to working on a soap opera just the technical stuff and I'm trying to think of other audition stories I mean I don't know there's so many but don't you think those experiences are exactly why as a producer you create a whole other world for the I people try. right yeah I can't I mean I I always want to be at auditions because... So you can take a call. So I can... Exactly. <laughs> you can eat, oh take a call. I can't do anything. I, I, auditions are so... I I can't bear it. I, 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 I would... If I could wrap my arms around every single person and personally carry them out of the room. Right. First of all, I have a really weird thing about when they... Anybody leaving an audition has to walk to the door and they their back is to the people for whom they've just read, get, ev gave everything yeah. that they had. Yeah. Five I, pints of blood. I can't bear it. For some reason, the walk to the door, I like, I literally can't bear it. Like I literally cry constantly on auditions because it doesn't seem fair that they should have to leave us with their back to us. Right. Like if there was a way I try to walk them to the door so they can see my face and I can say that was, Oh my God, that was so good. And thank you. And, thank you and you're making this hard for us and you know like and the same with writers I remember we were meeting with writers for uh it wasn't was it divorce or I can't remember another show we were producing and I was like why do any of these people who are like been around why do any of them have to come and meet with us like why can't why do we have to do this to them like do you know what I mean yeah I can't bear it I, I don't know why but I don't want to not be there because I want to make sure that every single person feels appreciated respected. and respected. Yeah. Right. Well, this is my last question for yeah. you. How did you come up with the names of those two fragrances? Because <laughs> I stay up at night trying to think of names of fragrances I don't make. I don't have a business. I, my children are Georgia and Caleb. I think I mean, they are perfect. the most beautiful names. <laughs> yeah. I will I will leave today like, why didn't I use Tabitha? Like, I'm still, Loretta, that's an amazing I know, I always name. want more kids just because I've been keeping just names for, for names. so long. Yes, and no. I think they're good, but I'll like, never I'll be able to like, I'm sorry, did you say Luther. your name is Raul? <laughs> yes. Oh my God, Raul Famuso, that would have been amazing. I know. So, but the last name is what's like, you know what I mean? Well, it's 
I mean, no one will ever know that they're Jewish <laughs> is all I can say. <gasps> uh, I, uh, but to, to answer your question, yeah. lovely. I, so very quickly, my mom, um, my mom always wore fragrance when I was a little girl and she didn't go, well, she actually did go out a lot, but she always like put fragrance on before she left the house and we would always be downwind of her, you know, as she was leaving. And even though I didn't love my mother's fragrance and it often gave me a headache, I loved the nostalgic, the memory, you know what fragrance does. Like it takes you right back. The same with music or, um, my grandmother wore Shalimar so, and it's like, oh, yeah, it's right here. It's right. Yeah, yeah. Like it's so immediate. Yeah. And, um, I just loved fragrance. And so, before I started doing Sex and City, I started keeping names of fragrance because in my head, because I started wearing fragrance pretty early in life and saved money and like would buy fragrance. And I know all, I know every fragrance I wore up until Lovely. I just kept names of fragrances. And when I did Lovely, I said to the company I was working with at the time, Cody, I said, I know this is crazy and I'm sure it's taken already, but my first name choice is lovely because like what a better name for fragrance because it like it says everything like it's a polite fragrance it's not too intrusive you know if you hug someone wearing lovely it doesn't stay on like everything about it is so well behaved it's lovely Um, (laughs) and sure enough the name was available and I was like what all these fragrant fragrance magnets in the world didn't use lovely and then stash came because it was something that I've been working on for a really long time and it was all the components were very expensive and the juice was everything about it was like prohibitive but the company that I was working with which I still do a company named IFF here in New York a fragrance house that's amazing they would put it together for me but at the time we hadn't put the components in one bottle so I would have these three different bottles of the components of this fragrance so sort of pillars of it and I was like, it's like stash. It's like contraband. It's like passing along something that's illegal. And that would it's be so my, good. it's so good. So that's how it came. And that's how it came. Yeah. To be sitting here in this absolutely, this is what I want to say about Sarah Jessica Parker's house, because <laughs> not all of you will have the chance to sit in it. Although if you watch you Vogue 73 questions, oh, that's right. you get to see little snippets <laughs> yes, of it. Yes, yes. The words that are coming to mind are informal elegance. The oh. idea that, that every piece is so beautiful and every piece of art, it, it is stunningly beautiful, but oh. I've never it felt look more like comfortable. It does like to you? Uh, it, <laughs> in the best way. <laughs> I'm like, in... well, this is a house of junk. It's a house of junk. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going. No, but like it's the prettiest blue I've ever seen. It's not quite Tiffany. It's it's gorgeous. A lot of it's my husband's paint, mother's painting. So a lot of it's Matthew Broderick, Patsy Broderick. A lot of things in there are are junk. They're they're junk. They're special to us, but it's but it's junk. It's your junk. One person's junk. So thank you for seeing the beauty in it. It's beautiful, but really like imagining that van, which is for some reason to me like it's it was a red and white Volkswagen bus. Right. Of course Stick it shift. was. Of course it was. Which we used as much as possible. We, we drove that car into the ground and on my birthday of that year, March of that year, the car broke down again on my birthday and we had to get back up to Dobbs Ferry where we had rented a house and my d- mom drove the car. She was by then here because the baby had been born in February and my dad had taken a shoestring out of one of our shoes, was in the back because Volkswagen vans the buses the engines in the back he had lifted up the top and he was sitting in the back trunk area with a shoelace tied to the engine part that was not working and manually pulling on one of our shoestrings to make it work as my mother drove up the west side highway on my birthday that bus we like asked everything of cars because we never had a new car we always had a used car so so anyway to be able to um, (laughs) take care of your family yes it's nice and (laughs) and, uh, to give back in the way that you do must be kind of extraordinary it's nice I'm very grateful thank you so much for doing this today it was a pleasure asking so many smart interesting questions somebody's got to do this to you all right well maybe it's you you really yeah oh maybe If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com.
I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says Contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast. And on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with stamps.com. Sign up at stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.